One thing that's important to talk about why this matters, like why the story voice need to exist? Like, why do we need to evolve? Is this just a feel good kind of project? Is it just about promoting books? That's really where the idea of like, this could be global kind of started. And again, it was just me hosting, reading, et cetera, because I was the only native English speaker on my team. And that was kind of our angle. The original founder, the CEO is usually depicted as like truly the off the wall, crazy one. And I, I am, but I really have no other choice. And anyone else who's ever built a company, I'm sure you have no other choice. It's in you, you have to do it. There's nothing that's going to stop you. If you do anything else, it's just not going to be your thing. Welcome to the Worthy for 30 podcast. I am your host, Eric Tash. Join us as we delve into the world of impactful business leaders who are setting the bar high. Worthy for 30 carefully curates its guests, engaging with business trailblazers who embody the ethos of doing good while doing well. In each episode, we extract actionable tips and wisdom from these visionaries, offering you a blueprint to merge success with social impact. Ready to elevate your business game? Let's dive in and learn how to do good while thriving. Worthy for 30, where purpose meets profit. Welcome to the Worthy for 30 podcast. I am your host, Eric Cash. This podcast is where we uncover remarkable stories of innovation and impact. Today, I have the fortune of speaking with Mike Clark, the co-founder of Story Voice. Uh, we're going to delve into the inspiring journey of Mike and his team. The way that I was introduced to Mike, uh, very funny, uh, David Honig, a, a friend and a supporter of the show, he has two teenage daughters who are reading to Ukrainian students who are affected by the war, by the Russian-Ukrainian uh, war. David and his daughters had the idea of how do we scale our impact? So uh, they turned to let's talk to or contact uh, book publishers. They reached out to Scholastic about you know, how do we work together to, again, scale the impact of U.S. students uh, reading with uh, Ukrainian students. And Scholastic at the time said, you need to talk to Mike and the Story Voice team. And then Dave is like, Eric, you need to start talk to Mike and the Story Voice team. Uh, what's also very funny and very coincidental is that Mike is a Montclair a resident, born and raised here. So we're going to, again, delve into the Story Voice journey. So definitely it's going to be a very inspiring and insightful conversation. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, Eric. Excited to be here. So let's dive right in. So we'll love to get your perspective and, and journey to co-founding Story Voice. Yeah, so the story of Story Voice really starts back in uh, 2016 when I first arrived in Lebanon. At this point in my life, I had just finished some master's coursework in international relations at the University in, of Cape Town in South Africa as part of a Rotary Foundation ambassadorial scholarship program and was fortunate enough to have worked at two venture-backed tech startups in New York City. Uh, experiences that really provided me with like a blueprint of how to take an idea, build a team, and turn it into a reality. So, so by 2016, I knew I wanted to work at this intersection of tech, innovation, and global impact. And at the time, the Syrian civil war and the outflow of refugees into neighboring countries in Europe was a critical global issue. It was always on the news, as you may remember. Um, so I decided to leave New York, kind of leave the normal day-to-day -day tech job stuff that I was doing uh, and go to Lebanon, Syria's Western neighbor, where over 1 million Syrian refugees had fled uh, to see how technology was being used to help improve refugee services and support host communities. Um, I had no real plan 
other than to just follow my curiosity and leverage some of my previous contacts from when I studied abroad in Egypt as an undergrad. Um, so I got to Lebanon in April of 2016. Uh, again, just kind of curious, what are people doing? What are people building? What's the UN doing? Uh, and it became quite clear to me that there was this burgeoning tech ecosystem developing uh, in Lebanon, fueled by tech-savvy graduates and a growing investor landscape across the Middle East and North Africa. And it was also clear that the UN agencies and nonprofits kind of addressing these refugee challenges had a lot on their plate and could benefit from new ways of thinking about things and service delivery through the lens of tech, especially since the majority of refugees in Lebanon had access to a smartphone and internet. So naturally, I decided to host a hackathon as kind of a way to just get some of these ideas out on the table and to start connecting the dots between these different groups. So I'll kind of pause there just to make sure you're familiar like with, with what a hackathon is. Well, I know what a hackathon is, but perhaps the listeners don't. So love to get your definition. Yeah. So basically, it's just like when you put a bunch of people, usually it's like engineers, creatives, business-minded folks, uh, in a space for a designated period of time. In this instance, it was a full weekend where there's a host of challenges that they need to build a prototype to solve for. And it's super fun. You work, you don't sleep, you pretty much eat junk food and you just jam for like 48 hours. And the idea is at the end of it, you present these ideas, you present these prototypes uh, to some panel of judges who are from the, the space where these projects would hopefully exist, exist one day. Um, and so we had gathered uh, essentially in June. So I arrived in April and by June, I hosted this hackathon, which turned into this massive thing. Uh, it was the first UN backed hackathon in Lebanon, uh, based around refugee challenges. We had over 150 participants. We had the head of basically the UN mission in Lebanon there to like welcome everybody. The wall street journal covered it. And it was like this big thing. And it really illuminated the potential of what could be created. And most importantly, as it relates to the story of Story Voice, it's where I met my future co-founders, Ahmad Ghazawi and Lean Nafa. Ahmad at the time was just an undergraduate computer science student who was on one of the teams. And Lean was a designer with the UN. Um, and so this is kind of where we first crossed paths. Um, and so from that moment forward for the next three years, I kind of continued in this role as a consultant to multiple UN agencies and uh, foreign embassies in both Lebanon and Jordan, kind of working with them to create programs that leverage the local tech ecosystem to help solve some of the challenges that they were working on as it related to refugee um, issues. Uh, and it was through these experiences, my day-to-day -day interactions with these communities, where the idea for Story Voice uh, then emerged. Wow. So you had this hackathon. Well, first, you, know, you moved to Lebanon. You helped organize this hackathon in, in concert with, with the UN and some of their agencies. You met your your co-founders. You know, there a lot of a uh, lot of balls in the air, a lot of yeah. uh, happenstance and serendipity. Um, as yeah. you look back, you know, one of my favorite Steve Jobs quotes is, you know, you can't connect the dots looking forward. You can only connect them looking oh, backwards. Yeah. <laughs> so so looking back, you're probably thinking to yourself, like, oh, my goodness, like you caught lightning in a bottle. It sounds like. Yeah, have everything lined up. And even before that, um, 
So essentially, once I knew that I was curious about like how tech was being used in this context of a refugee crisis or a humanitarian crisis, a friend of a friend, actually, um, the first startup I worked at, it's called RailSci, and it was founded by a guy named Neil Goldman, who is a very respected serial entrepreneur in New York. And one of his investors uh, was Fadi Khandor, who was the founder of Aramex in the Middle East, which is like their version of FedEx, basically. Mm -hmm. And he's a very big you know, tech person in that region. Um, and when I knew I wanted to kind of pursue this interest, Neil introduced me to Fadi, who introduced me to someone else, et cetera, et cetera. And eventually I got invited before Lebanon to a hackathon in Abu Dhabi at the NYU Abu Dhabi campus that was all about uh, building tech solutions for good. And the focus there was also around kind of the refugee crisis. And the team I was on, we built a chatbot on Messenger. And this is when chatbots were like very new, cool and sexy and all that. And there was... And there was someone from the UN at that panel. And so even though I knew I was eventually going to end up in Lebanon, this person loved the chatbot. And basically, that was my entryway into the UN when I got to Lebanon. So it all connected. And then the ultimate story behind that, too, is till this day, my parents tell me that my first word as a child was Abu Dhabi. So it was all <laughs> it was all written in stone uh, before I even got off the plane, apparently. Wow. Look, look at yeah. that destiny. Yeah. <laughs> not yeah. even, not even like, like a couple of days in to, to life on earth. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're already manifesting uh, what you're going to be doing as an Apparently. adult. That's yeah. Uh, that, is, that, is, that is pretty amazing. <laughs> so, so coming, so coming out of that, that hackathon when you were in Lebanon, working with the UN and meeting your co-founders, how did you, all, how did all three of you put your finger on education and helping those affected especially those children affected by the civil war. Like, yeah. How, how did you come to that? So I'll put it kind of into context. So basically one nonprofit that I worked with all the time uh, and still kind of keep in touch with is called the Kayani foundation in Lebanon. And they ran some of the only government accredited refugee schools in the country. And I used to work with them all the time. They were in the Baka Valley, which is essentially this like strip of land that stratifies the border of Lebanon and Syria. So this is where you had like the largest influx of Syrian refugees. Uh, and also just a fun fact, it's actually a horrible fact, uh, but for your listeners that many people don't know is actually in Lebanon, people pay rent for their tents. So there is no centralized, you know, refugee camp that the UN kind of monitors and everyone kind of know, like that doesn't exist there like it does in Jordan. Uh, and so what you had in Lebanon is complete decentralization of where people were settling and farmers were literally renting out tents on their land uh, for people to live in. So you kind of have these scattered plots of informal settlements like all over this region of the Paca Valley. And so we're talking like over a half a million, you know, elementary age children trying to now come into schools in a country whose infrastructure, quite frankly, was already, you know, lacking, right? Till now, Lebanon doesn't have electricity for 24 hours a day. So how are they going to deal with this massive influx? And the education system especially suffered. And one of the biggest challenges that I would come into regularly while working with Kayani was in Syria, the language of instruction for the academic curriculum was in Arabic. But when they, these kids came to Lebanon, it's 
Lebanon system uses Arabic, but also either French or English. So if you are not familiar in French or English, you are going to struggle in the school system. And so you have hundreds of thousands of kids trying to adapt to this new school system, but they have no one to read English or French with at home. Their parents don't speak these languages. They don't have these books at home. And so this is a big challenge. How can you help these kids become familiar with a language so they can keep up in class? Uh, and so I used to volunteer and read with kids. Naturally, you know, it was fun in person, all sit around just like you'd imagine it. But then I kind of realized like, I can only do this with so many kids and there are hundreds of thousand kids who, who need this experience. So how can we scale this? How can we scale story time essentially while maintaining the intimacy and joy of what it's like to read next to someone? Uh, and so that was kind of the initial spark for the idea was, can we recreate story time, but in like a fun virtual way for kids? Gotcha. And, and what year was this? Was this 2018? Yeah. So now we're getting into like, 2018, 2019. Uh, and then in 2019, I kind of had always kept Lean and Ahmad close to me because I kind of knew that they were super talented. We were aligned in terms of our missions, what, what drove us, what gave us goosebumps in terms of projects and things we want to work on. And so once I started working towards this, uh, we, we essentially formed a team. Um, and the first thing we actually built in 2019 was called Kindy. Uh, and the approach to kindy was kind of like Uber. So except instead of ordering a car, we basically built an app where kids can order a, uh, an on-demand reading buddy. So essentially the way this first app worked was after school, when a kid was home, they would open the kindy app. They would see a bunch of digital books that they could read. They'd pick one and then they'd request a reading volunteer. And then someone in our volunteer network, we partnered with different universities, et cetera, would get a message. Maybe they're on the bus like, hey, Fatima is looking for a reading buddy and they could accept it. They'd enter this kind of shared digital reading space where they would read the book together. A bird fly or a frog or a spider. Why does everything think I'm so delicious? Yeah, great job, Fatima. Thank you. And when it worked, it was beautiful. But what started happening was we were getting involved in more conversations about just like, how are we vetting volunteers and child protection, like all important stuff, but it was distracting from what we were trying to do. And then right after that, COVID started, Lebanon's economy collapsed, and it just became even more difficult to just like communicate with the team, with the schools we worked with and all that kind of stuff. And so... In late 2019, Lean, Ahmad, and I kind of took a little team retreat uh, to, to Barcelona, and we decided that we needed to pivot. And so it was there that we went from this original one reader to one kid model, which was Kindy, to a one reader to millions of kids model, which would soon be called Story Voice. And so with Story Voice, the idea became, you know, how can we centralize storytelling on Earth? How, how can we create one free, safe, exciting space for every child everywhere to take part in the joy and benefits of reading with others? Uh, essentially, can we build a digital gathering place where Earth does story time? Uh, and that became kind of what drove us uh, to create Story Voice. 
Wow. So, uh, end of, you know, so this is end of 2019, 2020, like right before COVID, you moved to Barcelona, you come out, you, you, you and your co-founders developed this idea of one to many in terms of story time and, and reading. So now you're, you're out of Lebanon, you're now you're in Barcelona. Mm-hmm. How do you go from, again, the, the product was specifically, again, and no fault of anyone was specifically for Lebanon, but now you want to go global. How did you go from zero to one in that, in that regard? Yeah. So as soon as we built like our prototype um, of story voice, we started it targeting kids in Lebanon. So the schools that we worked at, uh, we ran like, you know, different ad campaigns and stuff just to kind of see if people would even find this interesting, et cetera. And so it started with me uh, reading whatever open source children's books I could find online, which for the most part are pretty horrible. We literally wrote our own children's books as a team, um, which now would be really fun leveraging chat GPT, but we didn't have that back then. Uh, right. So it was just Mike GPT, essentially just writing <laughs> stories and it, yeah, but the kids didn't care. Right. They loved the experience. They thought it was so cool. They got to read with us. Uh, a lot of these kids too, you know, I can speak some Arabic, but not enough to really troubleshoot a problem if a kid is stuck in and so on. So we had a little speaker that had Lean's face on it. So like Lean would be with me because Lean and Ahmad are fluent in Arabic. And so like if a kid got stuck, it was just, we really were just, you know, keeping everything together with duct tape, as I always kind of (laughs) say in the early days, but it was working. And what was starting to happen though, was kids were joining from other countries. So somehow or another, they had discovered the app, you know, and we're joining. So we started having kids from Qatar, uh, Pakistan, India joining our shows. And I'm like, whoa, like, that's kind of interesting. And that's when we started to realize, like, you know what? Like, there's nothing really like this. Like, there is no cool live show where, like, all kids are getting access to the same experience and finding value in it. Um, And so... That's really where the idea of like, this could be global uh, kind of started. And again, it was just me hosting, reading, et cetera, because I was the only native English speaker on my team. And that was kind of our angle. Uh, but once COVID started, that's where Scholastic uh, came into the mix. Because a friend that I grew up with, whose mom worked at Scholastic, had helped us initially with getting some digital books when we were just kindy. So they were kind of already familiar with what we were trying to do, et cetera. But when COVID happened, Scholastic reached back out to us and said, hey, we want to find a way to keep kids connected to our books, to our authors during COVID, like everyone's at home. And so in 2020, uh, towards the end of 2020, is when we started running our first author pilot shows where we had U.S. classrooms joining, which I was super skeptical of. I always thought, well, it's obvious kids may be in emerging markets, you know, learning English. It's a foreigner. That's cool. Like there's, there's, there's like a different element of like attractiveness to that kind of a program versus I thought, well, in the U.S. kids are like, oh, what is this? I have to read or whatever. <laughs> but, right. but they loved it. And they were equally as excited, especially early en- elementary. And so it was at that moment where the dots really were starting to connect. So it's like, wait a minute, like who better to tell their stories on Story Voice than the authors themselves? Like that makes so much much sense, right? So from that moment on, you know, end of 2020 onwards, that's where this really became like an author program 
where authors read their book live to kids around the world. That is uh, that is something, and we'll dig into the Scholastic acquisition and you know how Story Voice is now integrated within the Scholastic family in just a second. But I saw a stat, Mike, that between 2020 and 2021, Story Voice uh, was was joined by 100,000 children in that one year. 2020 to 20, to now, how many kids have joined the Story Voice? Uh, so since our first full season in that 2021 year, we've, we've reached over 700,000 kids across 40 countries joining our live shows, uh, which includes over 21,000 U.S. classrooms. Um, and more than a third of those viewers come back for more. So we've, you know, we've really kind of built this beautiful community where, you know, in any given show, we, you have kids reading from all over the place. And, and we've gotten feedback from teachers sometimes where it's like, hey, in your show, a kid from India read. And one of my students asked in, you know, in a U.S. class, I'm like, hey, where's India? And so now the teacher's doing like a geography lesson after a story voice show because they're hearing all these voices with different accents. And they're curious, like, where are these other kids from? So um, we always say, like, connecting the world one story at a time. I like that connecting yeah. the world one story at a time because you know the the higher plane premise of the, of this show the word for thirty podcast is to make the less familiar more familiar. So mm -hmm. you're doing it in real time. You're you're like this U.S. student has heard about Pakistan, has heard about India, but hasn't really interacted with people yeah. from those countries, and now they're doing that virtually. But still, the, it's it's a real time understanding of maybe perhaps of that person, you know, cultural difference, cultural nuance, which just just makes the enriches the world around us, which I think is is quite amazing. Yeah, I think it's important. I mean, again, like I said in the beginning, I I, I kind of really get excited at this intersection of like tech and global community impact. And for me, perspective, right? Like, how do you get people to broaden their perspectives, to empathize? And so from a young age, if you can have a space where kids from around the world are reading together, I feel like that's a very beautiful starting point because, you know, if they're at a dinner table and someone said something negative about Pakistan or whatever, and a kid might say, hey, you know, I have a friend in Pakistan that joins this reading show, you know, and the world's a lot, not everything's black and white. And, and I think if kids can kind of get exposed to that, early on and kind of see, hey, like you like that story. I like that story. We're both in the same space. We just happen to be from different places. I, I think it's kind of beautiful. So that that's something that I'm really proud of, actually, with what we've done. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's uh, it's, it's quite amazing. So uh, again, before we get into the Scholastic integration and the acquisition, if, again, also looking back on the the the, um, the founding of Story Voice, like, I think of a, of a startup founder as like a master chef. Like they, they are able to pull ingredients. You know, again, it's not mm. like a baker. You need to be precise with True. a cook. You're able <laughs> to like throw and improvise as you go to the entrepreneurs and to the founders who are listening to you, Mike, what are some of those ingredients that you would recommend that they need in order to get a startup off the ground and off the ground successfully? You need co-founders who are crazier than you. Uh, you know, I, I, I kind of talk about this a lot with with other people, but, you know, OK, like uh, the, the original founder, the CEO is usually depicted as like truly the off the wall, crazy one. And I, I am, but I really have no other choice. And anyone else who's ever built a company, I'm sure you would like you, you have no other choice. It's in you. You have to do it. There's nothing that's going to stop you. If you do anything else, it's just not going to be your thing. But co-founders, 
often are extremely talented people in the in the field that they work in computer science design whatever it is they could go work anywhere in the world and be very successful but they choose they choose to get on your boat with no sails no map just a plan of some beautiful island that you might get to eventually and so i think the team it's the team because i'll say it you know and, and i say this to them all the time like i'll put my team against anyone and i think you have to have confidence in the team because it's going to be a dangerous scary journey and you guys just need to know that no matter what happens you're going to be able to navigate through the difficult times and if you have confidence in your team then everything's okay because it will get dark but um if you know that you guys can do it then eventually i think it it will work out uh, and and honestly my biggest advice would be if it doesn't give you goosebumps do not do it because the suffering that you're going to endure needs to be worth like the outcome of all of this and so um you know i always like to kind of separate projects from ventures projects can just be experimental fun there's you don't you don't really have any skin in the game but when you embark on a venture I feel like you need to know what you're really getting involved with and it needs to be something where the the elimination of that problem brings you so much excitement, joy, tears that there's really nothing else that you would rather do no matter how hard it gets. Gotcha. So so with a venture, it's your own, it's like it's like a child, you're obsessed. Mm -hmm. it, not only obsessed, like you can't just you just can't get it out of your head. Where a project it sounds like and correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, it's working for someone else. It's like it's you're 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 delegating that joy that you just explained with the venture to someone else and your destiny is not really in your control unless unless i'm mistaken yeah or it's just like uh like an artist kind of has their studio and like they have like their masterpiece their michelangelo but then like every couple every now and then they just draw to draw right they're like no no intended purpose other than to china practice and make sure they're ready for the venture and so for sure. me projects are that so like fun little apps things like that things like if if someone stole your idea or whatever like you wouldn't really care because it's really just your your you're keeping your creative muscles in tune for for when the real thing happens so yeah a venture would be more like you know it's time to sacrifice and and let's do this thing Let's uh, let's put our put our heads down and figure this out as we go. Like build the build a plane as we're flying. Uh. <laughs> yeah, but no. That for me, team is everything. Um, all the other stuff, I, I feel like now, you know, reaching out to people. Uh, you know, I feel like people are more than happy to help if your intentions are true, right? So, like when we were building Story Voice, I used LinkedIn and messaged all kinds of people you know, asking for advice, asking for introductions, asking for help. Um, and so I feel like if, if what you're doing, you really believe in it, you're passionate about it, other people will feel that energy and, and want to help you and be a part of it too. That's quite amazing because I, re I read a story, or not a story, maybe it was a social media post. Uh, again, the lines are blurred in our fragmented media world, mm. where if you make what you're doing bigger, people like what you're saying are going to receive it that way. Like, holy shit, Mike is onto something. Mm-hmm. And he reached out to me. I don't know, Mike, but the little bit I do know, like he's, he's, he and his team are onto something. I need to help. I need yeah. to figure out, like, I need to, uh, set aside some time to hear what he's working on and how I can help, which I think is, uh, which is just, just amazing. Cause it's what you're saying about 
you know, building that trust and that confidence and that belief with your team, again, with the objective of reaching that eventual destination, hopefully with that eventual destination, with all the hard work and sacrifice that you're putting in. I was just going to say one other thing, uh, forget what book I read it in, but I, I kind of live by it when it comes to building anything, which is surround yourself with people who believe in what you believe in. And I think if you can do that from a team standpoint, from an advisor standpoint, from a partnership standpoint, you're going to be in a really good place. Right. So, so it sounds like, again, your, your core value, the values are aligned with your advisors and your co-founders core values and vice versa. So that you have that harmonization that, that everyone's on the same page, you know, there's, yeah, there's no quote unquote guesswork. Yeah. We might get there in a funny way, but ultimately like what we want to get to, we're all aligned on. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the most important thing. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Well, again, you can hear the horror story, horror story going business insider of, you know, the three founders and one's left. And why is that one left? Uh, and then, you know, the, the, the drama ensues. But again, you know, with the hard work and again, getting there eventually to that to that same page or the harmonization of values, uh, you know, it's well worth the journey. You, you said goosebumps, which I think is a good segue into the Scholastic uh, <laughs> partnership. You know, I, again, I always look for the, yeah, those yeah. clues. Uh, so please, uh, was it was at the end of twenty two when when the deal closed when Scholastic officially bought uh, or acquired Story Voice? Yeah, and a quick. So we hosted RL Stein twice. Actually, <laughs> we just hosted him for Halloween, and I'm going to share a very fun RL Stein fact that I didn't know, and I don't think a lot of people do. First of all, he still writes like brand new Goosebumps books all the time, but he writes every book with one finger, like types out every single Goosebumps book with one finger. And if you ever see it, it's like a little crooked too. Uh-huh. And he'll like oh. he'll be the first to talk about <laughs> it and everything. He's a, he's a very funny person. Uh, but yeah, R.L. Stein writes every Goosebumps book with one finger. That's a fun fact. Yeah. <laughs> that is a real fun fact. And it's, it's amazing because that was like, that was the the book. You know, anytime there was this classic book fair in my elementary school, everybody would clamor for buying the next uh, Goosebumps book. And it's amazing yeah. that he's still writing. And not only still writing, but he's, uh, sounds like he loves being part of the community in terms of reading uh, to students. Yeah, I mean... I think what R.L. Stein has done, you know, through his stories is what we're trying to do through technology, which is how can you get kids excited enough to want to turn the page? And I think like if you ever if you remember reading Goosebumps, it always ends on like a hook and it makes you want to see what happens on the next page. And right. I think in Story Voice, we're trying to accomplish the same thing every day. How, how can we get kids so excited that they want to go f- read the rest of the book or read the next book in the series? Um, and so, yeah, uh, we've, we've had a lot of fun hosting R.L. Stein. But um, from the from the Scholastic perspective, so we started hosting their authors in you know 2020 during COVID. And that kind of evolved and expanded in 2021 into a more like formalized partnership. We did have other publishers reaching out to us. Uh, but against my advisor's advice. Uh, I kind of put all my eggs in the basket of Scholastic. I just thought ultimately big picture, you know, I always knew Story Voice was going to end up with a publisher. You know, my team's background was not in publishing. That's not our strong suit. But I knew that we would need a publisher for great content, great authors, and kind of it just made a lot of sense. And I always hoped it was the one with the big red dog. And so as soon as we uh, started working together, I was very excited. And so over time, that partnership 
kind of evolved. We got to know the entire company. We worked with all the different groups. You know, what's unique about Scholastic as a publisher is, yes, they publish books, great books, right? Books we all know, Harry Potter, Goosebumps. Um, but they also have the book fair business and the book club business, which are literally touch every single school in the United States. So they have access to millions of teachers and they have an entire education solutions team. So like all different types of literacy, digital literacy tools for schools that they sell into districts and they have a giant international division. And so when you think about what would be the perfect partner for story voice, right? Like if our mission is to bring the joy and benefits of read alouds to children everywhere, Scholastic is the world's biggest children's book publishing company in the world. And so for us, Scholastic is an accelerant uh, to that mission. And so it just kind of naturally became obvious over time that, you know, we should, we should just be working together. And so, you know, we had to meet with all the people, go through the the process, but eventually uh, that's what happened at the, towards the end of 2022, almost exactly a year ago, actually. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> so as like, as again, formally part of the Scholastic, yeah, they went through the diligence process of getting a startup that they were going to acquire. And they're like, okay, let's bring you on, bring on the, the story voice team. But you're still acting semi-autonomous from, mm-hmm. from Scholastic. Yeah, kind of. I mean, now we're, we're starting to integrate a lot more, which is great. So basically, uh, Scholastic recently bundled together the book fairs business and the book clubs business into school reading events. Uh, and we're a part of that group. And so what's pretty cool now is like all of the books that get featured on Story Voice are books that kids can then find at their book fair or in their book club flyer. So the synergies are super clear. Uh, so, for example, we get messages from librarians that will say, hey, uh, we just had our book fair and all the kids bought this book because they had just seen it on Story Voice. And so... Um, the connections between like from a commerce perspective are making sense for the business, uh, which is exciting for us. Um, and then, yeah, from a mission standpoint, we're completely aligned. I mean, I couldn't think of a better partner than Scholastic to be working with because, again, we have access to all these school communities, but also to the literacy expertise at the company. You know, when we think about what's the next feature we should build to make it read aloud engaging digitally. We have these people who can tell us like, hey, this is like a best practice in dialogic reading. You should try to figure out a way to mimic that virtually, which I would never, you know, know. So I think it's just for us, it's, it's the perfect place to, to turn story voice into kind of or bring story voice into its next chapter. Oh, God. Yeah, absolutely. Again, to, to your point of, of being part of this classic family is an accelerant to Story Voice's mission. Um, and one, one thing that you also hit upon is that, you know, great startup founders and co-founders uh, have that level of self-awareness to say, we don't know what we don't know, but we're going to find out what we don't know. So asking those types of questions, Mike, to this classic team, and they're telling you like, okay, how can you replicate that within the Story Voice uh, environment is pretty astounding. And they have the, 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 the brain and muscle power to, to, to help, it sounds like, make that happen. So I'd love to talk about, if you're willing, you know, about what does 2024 hold for Story Voice? Or what are some of the enhancements that are on the roadmap? Yeah, so I think one thing that's important to talk about is like why this matters 
like why the story voice need to exist? Like, why do we need to evolve? Is this just a feel good kind of project? Is it just about promoting books? And I think, you know, cause I, again, I had no background in publishing and education and any of those things. Story voice was built purely out of love, right? And the joy of seeing kids get excited to just be together. But what I've come to learn is actually there's a really big problem. Um, and the problem is, uh, you know, even here in the U.S., more than half of the children that grow up in the United States do not have access to regular bedtime read-alouds at home. That is a fact, which is crazy to think about. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and learning loss uh, from the pandemic, right? Um, I think it was something like there's been a seven-point drop in reading scores uh, in the last decade. Uh, there was an article recently from The Atlantic called Why Kids Aren't Falling in Love with Reading, which highlighted how the percentage of 9 to 13-year-olds who said they read daily for fun has dropped by double digits since 1984. And so we have like kids don't think reading is as fun anymore. Kids are not reading as well anymore. And this is critical because, as you know, we live in a world bombarded with information, much of it unreliable or deceptive. So we need kids need to learn how to read so that they can read to learn, right? Like right. this is a very important, like our democracy is like dependent on this kind of foundational element of we need kids to be excited about reading so that they can learn to read so they can in the future read to learn and be active citizens. Um, and so at Story Voice, you know, our whole mission is to leverage technology to get kids excited about reading to help accomplish this, right? To, to get kids to turn the page. Uh, and so with us, it's like, we know that the magic is already in the story. Scholastic is really good at picking stories full of magic, right? And so our hope is with like a sprinkle of technology, we can bring some of that magic out just enough to get kids curious to kind of dive in for themselves. And so as we look to 2024, I think from a technology perspective, it's all about building on this kind of interactive element of the show, right? So as it is now, it's a live show. Kids can call in like a radio show and, and actually read with authors, ask questions. There's polling, there's trivia, there's all kinds of fun things uh, that keep kids engaged. Like we have a feature where the page gets stuck and kids have to send lots of hearts in order for us to be able to turn the page. <laughs> like little things that just make right. this fun and make them laugh just like you did, right? So right. I think there's that. There's also going to be a more diverse programming. So what kind of shows can we create besides author shows? Maybe there's other kinds of shows that would draw kids into a book. Maybe not just because the author's there, but maybe it's a musical or something like this. Uh, and then I think from um, a corporate perspective, we're really starting to align on messaging, on outreach, on kind of building awareness of the platform. So I, I see 2024 as kind of a huge growth year for just our audience. Uh, in general, um, uh, going forward. Mm -hmm. So uh, looking at, you know, again, uh, the objective is to make reading interactive and reading fun and again, getting those uh, kids to turn to want to turn the page, not only want to turn the page, but keep coming back and just not thinking so, you know, yes, uh, having those uh, read alouds or read alongs with uh, classic authors, you know, perhaps there are other ways, other mediums uh, that can you know, draw um, that student in or that child in. Uh, and what's also interesting, what you said mm -hmm. is, you know, again, driving more awareness uh, of the platform, uh, which is, <clears throat> which is tremendous. Again, you know, the, the media landscape, as we know, in the U.S., 
in particular is very fragmented. Um, you know, you touched upon, you know, there's a lot of misinformation, a lot of disinformation. Uh, unfortunately, COVID has been weighing uh, heavily on students. Um, just from a, from a reading perspective, you know, how do they, how do they get back up or how do they catch, catch up? And I think what Story Voice, uh, is, has done, is doing, especially with Scholastic, I think is, is just tremendous. Uh, Mike, as we round out our conversation for the folks who want to learn more about Story Voice, where should they go? Yeah. So all our shows are free. Uh, if you just go to storyvoice.scholastic.com, um, you'll see our full schedule. The app is, can work on the web. So you can watch from a laptop. Usually teachers will join from their laptop and then project it for everyone in the class. Uh, and then parents, there's a Story Voice app too, which you can download um, on an iPad or tablet or mobile phone and kind of watch together as well. And when you go there, you'll see the full schedule, who's up next, all that kind of fun stuff. Gotcha. And, and in terms of, is there, is there a capacity, like a threshold capacity for any of the... Nope. nope? Anyone, so anyone and everyone can. If that happens, we've gotten to a really good place. <laughs> as we like to say and start, right? That's a good problem to have. That's so, a good problem. Um, right? As of now, no, there, there's no real threshold for how many people can tune in. Gotcha. Okay, excellent. And then uh, just out of self-interest, you know, my daughter's seven. She goes to the local elementary school here in Glen Ridge. I think they have three scholastic book fairs. You mentioned, you know, the book club book fairs and Story Voice are, are integrated. So the next time there's a book fair at our local school, are there going to be call outs for Story Voice? Like, I'm just out of, I just out of curiosity, where would I see Story Voice branding once there's another book fair? Yeah, so the idea there is um, whoever the host is for that book fair they have like a host hub uh, through the book fairs kind of website where they're like a logged in state. And in that host hub, it highlights like, hey, tell your classrooms and teachers about Story Voice so that they can see the books that they're going to find at the fair. So that would probably be um, where your child would get exposed. Ideally, it would be they would join some of the shows or watch some of the recordings that are tied to the books that oh, hopefully they will then uh, find in the fair. And what's funny is... I don't know, but word kind of got out that I'm from Montclair on some of the shows. I think I mentioned it. And so okay. now we have like all these Montclair classrooms, like joining a lot of the shows, which has been super fun for me. Yeah, that's, no, that's great. That's great. Yeah. Now, now I have to see like who's hosting this classic book fair at my daughter's elementary school. I'm like, okay, yeah. get in that hub, unlock uh, story voice. Let, let's, let's uh, get, drive some interest. Yeah, no, here. for sure. And if you, yeah, if you want to connect me or whatever, I can kind of yeah. just make sure they see it. It's usually a librarian or someone from the PTA at every school kind of depends. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. Mike, it's uh, been a pleasure. We could talk for, for hours. Um, this is, this has been great. Uh, I'm going to include links, uh, to follow story voice. Uh, Mike, are you on LinkedIn, Instagram? If, if, uh, anyone wants to connect or better with email? What's what's your preferred uh, mode of communication? Yeah, emails is probably better. Um, Mike at storyvoice.live. That works. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I just I, I need to be more active, I guess you could say. But uh, yeah, um, yeah, that works. And then, uh, Eric, yeah, thank you so much for giving us the space to, to share our story. And uh, as we like to say at Story Voice, may the stories be with you. May the stories be with you. I, I love it. The the the, uh, the Star Wars uh, reference. Yeah. I love it. I love it. May the stories be with you. Uh, so yeah. So again, great conversation. I'll include links to uh, to find Story Voice. How you can you know again if you're a, a, a parent of uh, elementary school's uh, children, how you can unlock Story Voice at the next uh, classic book fair. And then if you have any questions for Mike, I'll include his email address in the uh, in the in the uh, write up. Mike, great speaking, and we'll chat soon. 
Awesome. Thank you, Eric. Thank you for joining this episode of the Worthy for 30 podcast. Stay tuned for more insights from impactful business leaders. Don't miss out. Follow us on all podcast platforms to catch every conversation.